Good evening, Hollywood phonies. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rokraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And welcome to the 60th Academy Awards. We'll be talking all about the ceremony today and focusing on the five Best Picture nominees. I think this year is interesting in different ways, and we'll definitely get into why. I have thoughts and feelings, as usual. What do you think about this year and the list of nominees? Candidly, the 80s are not my favorite decade in cinema, but what I will say is that two of the movies we will talk about today are in my top five movies of the 80s and definitely on my all-time list. So I'm very excited to talk about a fun year in film and some really interesting snubs too. I was pretty shocked when I saw some of the films that came out this year that are really notable but were left out of the Best Picture lineup. Definitely. And especially looking at lists from critics this year, and then just other Oscar nominated movies of the year that didn't get into, say, picture or director. Yeah. And this year, too, we have so many, I think, fun and unique stories of Oscar campaigns that I'm really excited to talk about, whether it's studio campaigns for individual movies or some absolutely outrageous personal acting campaigns that we'll get to. Oh, okay. (laughs) I don't know any of those, so I'm excited to hear about that. Cool. So our list of Best Picture nominees this year include The Winner, The Last Emperor, and then the other nominees, Broadcast News, Fatal Attraction, Hope and Glory, and Moonstruck. An interesting collection of nominees, especially think when you think about the genres that got in. A romantic comedy, one that's like kind of a romantic comedy, but I would call a dramedy, an erotic thriller, Mm -hmm. and then two pretty standard highbrow Oscar fair pieces that we get a lot. So let's start with The Last Emperor, our Best Picture winner. It is a sweeping account of the life of Puyi, the last emperor of China following the leader's tumultuous reign. It was directed by Bernardo Bertolucci, a very controversial figure, but a great filmmaker nonetheless. And... The biggest thing here is that The Last Emperor swept the Oscars. It won all nine Oscars that it was nominated for, which included picture, director for Bertolucci, art direction, cinematography, costume design, editing, original score, sound, and screenplay. Nuts. That is, and it has happened quite a bit, but most of the nominees that do these clean sweeps usually only have like two or three nominees. The last time this had happened... Before The Last Emperor was Gigi in 1958, which also had nine nominees, only to be surpassed in 2003 with The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King with 11 nominations, which is one of the most nominated films in history. And to pull a Schitt's Creek sweep here was insane for the Academy Awards. Yeah. And I think a case too with Lord of the Rings and with The Last Emperor. So you don't see big acting wins here. It's mostly in technical categories and then with picture and director, which makes it, I think, even more interesting when you're looking at a film like The Last Emperor and you see, wait, this film didn't have a single acting nomination, (laughs) yet it won nine Oscars. That's practically unheard of, I think. But in the 80s, we did see this tradition of films like The Last Emperor winning Best Picture. So you had movies like Out of Africa, Gandhi, Platoon, that were these grand epic films that tend to resonate with the Academy. I also felt like The Last Emperor was a great history lesson in a way. And I know not everything is factual in the film, but 
from what I read also is that the historical elements were more factual than the recounting of Puyi's life. So I think that's interesting because I never loved history and I especially didn't know much about China, the People's Republic of China, the change in government from imperialism to a republic, which is how the movie starts when Puyi is crowned the last emperor at three years old. So I think I enjoyed those aspects, which I don't necessarily always enjoy a history lesson in a movie, but I think it's done well enough here and we can go into other specific elements One being the cinematography, which is probably its most deserved win of the night. I agree. It is a really beautiful film. What's funny to me, I guess, about it is that this is such a classic example of you give a director their best director Oscar for maybe their third or fourth best movie. In Bertolucci's case, right? It's like we didn't give him... The Oscar for The Conformist, which I love The Conformist. Il Conformista, I know. This is a nice throwback (laughs) to our Italian movie and Mafia Days with Dana. Yeah. (laughs) She loved that movie so much. So I think that was very, you know, you have this director who is well known and respected winning for this movie where you have this great story like he was given permission to shoot inside the Forbidden City and Queen Elizabeth I read that she also had a visit planned there but she actually wasn't able to go because the Chinese government gave precedent to Bertolucci for this movie so yikes it's pretty cool (laughs) when you like think of stuff like that you're just like okay these are good stories that would resonate with voters to give it that push And this was the first Western film to be shot in the Forbidden City. I think it's just fascinating to me that he approached the Chinese government to do this. And one, Mm -hmm. that they allowed this to happen. I don't think the film speaks poorly of China. But I think it's still fascinating that they approved this film to be made. Especially what China was going through at the time. I think once I had finished the movie, I read about the protest that happened in 1989, which is the year after this came out, and the Maoist revolution that was happening. So I think it came at just a very interesting turning point for the country. It did. I think, too, one thing that I was just kind of confused by was that this film, you know, it's made by an Italian. You know, a lot of people from different countries actually worked on this film, but so much of it was in English. I thought that was so strange, and especially because... I read the real Reginald Johnson, who is the Peter O'Toole character, Mm -hmm. actually spoke fluent Chinese. But in the movie, they speak English. And also, Tony Leung from In the Mood for Love, he actually turned down the lead role because he felt that his English wasn't strong enough. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, if I can start complaining now, I will say one of the first things that I noticed was that it was in English, and I was looking specifically at their lips to see if it was dubbed or not, and it for sure wasn't, and I was just so disappointed by this. Mm -hmm. Like, really, you're going to have a movie about Chinese culture, and it's going to be in English? Yeah. I just felt very odd about that. There are other parts in the film that just don't come off well. There's a scene later on once he's banished. The entire band that's playing is in blackface. And it's just like did not age well at all. No, I think part of the challenge and like part of the thing I always try to do when I'm watching movies for these rewind episodes is to put myself like in the time. But there are some things where I still just don't understand why that would be something that you would need to do when you're making your film. Mm -hmm. And it won for 
screenplay as well, which I don't think was necessarily the strongest of the year by any means. (laughs) On these episodes, we always ask kind of these standard questions for each as we're going back. But how do you think today's Academy would receive this? Like if this had been made today, obviously there would be smaller changes. I think it would be well received, but it wouldn't have swept everything. I still think it's a worthy portrait of this historical moment for China. And I think if it were made today, too, with all of the political tensions that America's had with China, specifically in the last few years, I think that would add an interesting element with an outsider's perspective, if it were still made by an Italian director, say. Do you agree? Sweeps are just more uncommon these days. So I agree Mm -hmm. with you. I don't think a sweep would happen, but I think it would do well. I think that this is just like Academy members still love historical epics. Clearly, there's a certain contingency of the Academy who has an appetite for historical dramas. Like look at 1917 last year. I think that was more riveting, more action-packed than The Last Emperor, but I think that they would still go for it. And I've never seen this movie called Empire of the Sun, but it came out the same year. It's a similar story. It's also two and a half hours. It's made by Spielberg, but apparently it also gained this special access to film in China, but it didn't do well at the Oscars at all. It also features like a very young Christian Bale, which was funny to see in the trailer. It ended up being nominated for six Oscars, but didn't win any. So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of surprised that, you know, you have these similar films based on historical moments. And The Last Emperor took everything and this took nothing. Right. When I saw that this was that year, the baby Christian Bale movie, as I refer to it as, (laughs) I thought, why not this instead of Hope and Glory? That kind of made more sense to me. But we'll get to Hope and Glory and why it got in. And if you could give this movie one Oscar other than Best Picture, what would it be? It would be cinematography. Yeah, hands down. I think the the long takes, these deep focus shots, the extremely strong colors that are in every single shot in the movie, I think are just very exemplary. And that's really what kept my focus the whole time. Mm-hmm. I would do the same thing. I would choose Best Cinematography also. It's a really well-made movie and it is beautifully shot. So going into our nominees now, we have Broadcast News, one of my favorite movies of the 80s. So a description here, a high-strung news producer finds herself strangely attracted to a vapid anchorman, even though she loathes everything he personifies. To make matters worse, her best friend, a talented but not particularly telegenic news reporter, is secretly in love with her. It was written and directed by the great James L. Brooks. It stars William Hurt, Holly Hunter, and Albert Brooks. It was nominated for seven Oscars and one zero. That will be a theme that comes up in this episode. But it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for William Hurt, Best Actress for Holly Hunter, Best Supporting Actor for Albert Brooks, Best Screenplay for James L. Brooks, Best Cinematography for Michael Ballhaus, also Best Editing. How did you feel about this? Because I know you hadn't seen it before. Hadn't seen the trailer. All I saw was the poster, which was this like happier version of Network is kind of what I expected. I had trouble with this movie. And I think part of that is due to, like you mentioned earlier about watching a movie, thinking of the time that it came out in. And I think that's maybe where I struggled is because this wasn't as groundbreaking, I guess, if it were to come out today, than it might have been in the 80s. 
I think it started out really strong. I enjoyed how they introduced these characters as they were young, but then just certain parts didn't come across to me. I think the relationship between Aaron and Jane was just really weird and uncomfortable from the beginning. So the first thing I want to go into, I guess, about like this movie at the time and why I think it still holds up today and why so many people adore this movie and why I really love it. Mm -hmm. So I think if we look back to the 70s and you have Network, which you mentioned and we've talked about before, Network is a very prescient movie about journalism that is very indicative of what was going on in 70s American filmmaking. It was more of a thriller, more of a satire. It had the Diana Christensen character be somewhat of a villain. And then we get to the 80s. And you have Broadcast News, which I believe is a masterpiece and one of the best movies ever made about journalism. But it's in the 80s, so the alpha 80s characteristic or that trait is in it. And it's central to those three characters. But the Holly Hunter character, Jane Craig, who I adore and have always like felt a kind of kinship with, is a different kind of woman than the Diana character, the Faye Dunaway character in Network. And that's something that I really love is that James L. Brooks, the director and the screenwriter who made Mary Tyler Moore, made Terms of Endearment, which was this Oscar juggernaut a few years prior, was really, really great at writing female characters. And he actually, when he was working on Broadcast News, he worked on it for about four years, did extensive research in the media. He wanted to make a great film about a great woman and a complicated woman and a woman who loved her work. And I think that that is actually why this film doesn't feel dated to me. There are parts of it that feel very 80s, but at the same time, it predicts a lot of what's happening and going to happen and what's going to be important to people in the news But it does it in a way that is, it shakes up, I think, what a lot of people think it's going to be. So I'm going to read this quote that I really loved from a piece in The Ringer about this movie. On first watch, it seems like a classic love triangle in a workplace setting. On the second watch, broadcast news is a classic love triangle in a workplace setting that also functions as a study of rare, fascinating, ambitious characters. On the third watch, Broadcast News is a classic love triangle in a workplace setting with an accurate and hilarious, brutally so look at the media hellscape as it was then and is now. In other words, it's a masterpiece. And I totally agree with that. And that's not saying that you have to watch it multiple times, but that's just saying how it holds up over the decades and why it resonates with audiences so much, I think, still today. It's a love story. But the love story is so complex because it's not humans falling in love with each other as it is about humans falling in love with their work and how that relationship is what's more indicative of the 80s, but also of media. And I love that. In that way, it's more of a love square. I definitely do agree and see it as putting the love of your work and your career before the physical love between two people. And I think that part of the film is great. I think making Jane this extremely complex and successful woman in television producing, which is largely populated by men, I think that's also exceptional. But at the same time, I felt like the way that he was portraying her in certain ways made her either unlikable or unable to identify with her. She's definitely good at her job. That's stated very clearly. But the fact that she's so bad at love maybe didn't seem believable to me. So the Aaron-Jane relationship is introduced pretty early on as these two people that have worked together for a while are great friends. 
but you can also feel that like something is there. But you don't have sexual tension after like 20 years of working together if you've either never done anything about it or you had in the past, you would have had a discussion about this. So the fact that this climax happens and Aaron ends up yelling at Jane about him being in love with her after all this time didn't make sense to me. There's like an awkward scene in the middle too where they kiss and she just laughs it off. And I think throughout the film, it's very clear to me that Jane is never interested in him. Yes, I Mm -hmm. think she adores his work and that's the point of her liking Tom physically, but hating his work. So it's this dynamic of, do you end up with someone because you share the same values or are you just physically attracted to them? And I think what I was trying to say about that, which confused me more (laughs) when I saw the alternate ending, which is included on the Criterion disc. I love the alternate ending. Which just like 180 (laughs) from what happens, which- We can talk about the ending. I hate the ending. It's like the one thing of this movie that I don't like. Okay, so we agree on that. <laughs> yeah, I I think it's so out of place and strange. I just like, it doesn't work for me at all. Like it tries to put these characters seven years into the future and how their lives have changed or yeah. become so different and they all converge again. It's like, here's what we have to remember. Brooks is really good at writing sitcoms. I love Mary Tyler Moore so much. I used to like pretend to be Mary Tyler Moore when I was a child, but that ending is just so 80s sitcom to me. And the beginning is too of them as kids, but I like the beginning. I think the beginning works because it's kind of cute and it Mm -hmm. saves work later on that you would have to do to establish like who these characters were as people and why. But the end just, it's an epilogue and generally I just don't, I don't go for those as well as just a nice tidy ending which the alternate ending is and has some really great acting from William Hurt and Holly Hunter better than anything he did in the whole movie and it's disappointing (laughs) that he didn't get this scene in there okay so let's talk about the Aaron Jane relationship because that to me felt very true to life because I think when you have this man and woman who are very good work colleagues who seem to be intellectual equals and who understand each other in that way. One, if you work with someone and you like them, that's so hard to figure out and to make something happen. Even back in the 80s, what were they supposed to do? And I think it's very realistic that he wouldn't say anything until he had the threat of William Hurt's character there. William Hurt's character, who he literally calls the devil to Jane, who represents everything that he hates right i don't find his character very likable at all there are a million guys in dc just like this character i find him pretty annoying and i know that albert brooks is you know people really love him and he has a great performance but this character that totally fits with what he would do it would take something like a william hurt type of guy who represents everything that he can't be in his fields to be interested and not only to be interested in her But to see that, okay, Jane is someone who he views as like this really smart person who he loves and who is so good at her job to him, it is completely unconscionable that she would be interested in someone that vapid. So that's why I think it takes him so long to do anything about it because he's comfortable where they are. And I think he's, he doesn't think he can, you know, push that. And I think it is possible. I think we've had stories for centuries about love taking that long to have anything happen and it being unrequited and for Jane 
it is so typical, I think, of a man like the Albert Brooks character to not understand why Jane would like Tom. If you are that much in your own head and that neurotic, speaking from personal experience, sometimes you don't want a guy who's a know-it-all too. It's exhausting. Like you need someone who's just like attractive and kind of dumb. And he gets her in a way that I think is different than the Aaron character does. Definitely. But is Aaron so blind that he can't see over the years that I'm assuming he's also shown affection for Jane, but also been brushed off by her so many times? Is he so blinded by his love that he doesn't see that she doesn't want him and that they're just really good friends? And I think it needed a scene where after we saw them young, we saw Jane and Aaron starting at this company when they were younger and becoming friends. But what would that have added? Or I think I just would have liked to have seen the Aaron-Jane relationship be about two really good friends that are male and female that didn't necessarily have to be sexual. Well, the thing is, is like he's such a classic case of like a nerdy straight guy. It's so well-written and spot-on. Yes, he is a little blind to it because that's how a lot of straight men are. And two, he was friend-zoned, basically. Yeah. So for him, it's easier or more comfortable to just stay the way they are, even though he loves her. That's what I got out of it. It's like he's just to me this like chip on his shoulder, intellectual, thinks he's better than other people, but will never have that it thing that the Tom character has that will make him a successful news person in that way I promise you like it just it is how a certain type of straight guy is it just makes sense but then I don't know if this is just like a movie rule that I feel like they broke but I feel like he can't yell at her at the end right he shouldn't yell at her at all he's an asshole (laughs) yeah no but that's how he is that's the character he thinks he's entitled to everything because he's smarter yeah so he does that and it sucks But it's very true to the character. And you see the scenes where they're fighting, like the one where he ends up calling Tom the devil. And you can see him like he does that thing where you yell at someone before you really like gather your thoughts. And you can kind of see him like walk it back and put something together that he's like been practicing and wanting to say. I think it's just it's really, really smart screenwriting and acting Mm -hmm. by both Brooks men they're not related actually which is funny um, for our listeners if you were wondering if James and Albert Brooks were related they're not but yeah I think like that's why this movie really stands out for me is because the characters are just so well written and the screenplay is maybe like top 50 for me ever and I think that the acting you have William Hurt, Albert Brooks, and Tolly Hunter all like peak of their powers 80s actors doing what they do best Responding to that quickly, I watched an interview today with Holly Hunter, and she said that James L. Brooks had been auditioning people for months and months, and he just couldn't find the right Jane, and she came in, and they thought that she was auditioning to be a PA in this movie, not as Jane. (laughs) Which, does that not mean she was at her peak yet? Well, this was just a huge breakout role for her, and this was a big year because she also had Raising Arizona this year with Nicolas Cage, who we'll talk about later. But this was kind of her breaking through. And to me, 1987 is the best year of Holly Hunter's career. And just to have like such a strong start, I can't imagine the Jane role being anybody else. It was supposed to be Deborah Winger, who was also a really big actress in the 80s, was in Terms of Endearment, but she got pregnant. So Holly Hunter. I also saw an article pop up that said Catherine O'Hara wanted the Jane role as well. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
which I don't think well, would have played. But. No, just imagining her with um, Albert Brooks specifically is so weird. I don't know why. I just like can't. Also in this movie that we haven't mentioned yet is Joan Cusack. I know. Who is great as this adult TV producer. She is. One quote that I do have to mention because it's just my favorite is when Jane hears, it must be nice to always believe you know better, to always think you're the smartest person in the room. And she replies, no, it's awful. I thought that was great. I think there are some lines and scenes that really resonate and that I can identify with. But I think I had trouble with certain aspects of the characters and not either believing in them or thinking that it was like too much Hollywood magic trying to happen, that it kind of turned me off. He definitely does that because ultimately this is just a, a long episode of a sitcom. It's just really well done. Like that's yeah. how it feels. And I think it's it's kind of impossible sometimes to see his scenes and not think that he's like pushing for this. And that's why I compared Sorkin to him, that he's pushing for this like heartwarming, dramatic swell that you only experience in certain types of films or TV shows. Have you seen Terms of Endearment? No, I haven't. I was going to say I've seen As Good As It Gets, which again, I didn't love. Yeah. So, but I know I need to see Terms of Endearment, which I think won Best Picture. Picture, director, actress for Shirley MacLaine, supporting actor for Jack Nicholson, and screenplay. So a version of the big five. Mm -hmm. Okay. And did really, really well at the box office. I'm really curious if you'll like it. I've never (laughs) cried harder in a movie in my entire life. That's your preview. In a way, I think I base too much how I feel about posters. And I think this reminds me of Ordinary People, which I've also never seen, but it gives me a similar vibe. It does have a kind of similar poster now that I think about it. They're both very sad, but very different movies. A bit about Oscars quickly for broadcast news. So it didn't win anything, but just a couple things to point out. It did sweep the New York Film Critics Circle Awards. Holly Hunter won most of the Critics Awards for Actress. Another thing I did want to mention, too, is that James L. Brooks said that he wanted all three actors to be run in the lead categories. But at the Oscars, Albert Brooks was nominated supporting and William Hurt was lead, which I I feel like is category fraud. For sure. I agree with running everyone lead because everyone is. I would say Albert's character is maybe slightly more supporting, but not really. So this film was shot by Michael Ballhaus, Mm -hmm. who was also cinematographer for many of Scorsese's films. And a few we've discussed here on Oscar Wilde being Quiz Show, The Age of Innocence, and Goodfellas, and being responsible for that tracking shot into the restaurant club, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. When you're watching this, if you pay close attention to how it's shot, it is really clever. But if you're thinking of Michael Ballhaus, you can really see like, okay, this is a master DP at work. Mm -hmm. You have that Goodfellas scene. And then I think the one scene, especially in broadcast news that is really well done is the scene where they're trying to get the tape in in the last 90 Mm -hmm. seconds. And then Joan ends up running through the studio (laughs) to get it there. And I think it's shot well. There's some quick editing that's really great. So again, I I don't hate this movie entirely. I do like parts of it. I think some of the script is incredible. What if Needy were attractive is like something I can completely identify with. I loved that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the editing is really good. There are really great lines. I think that I love the Bobby, 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 Bobby when they're running through and trying to get the tape in. And (laughs) I love the scene too where she's in his ear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
so good. I love that editing. It's like really hard to watch when Aaron is just profusely sweating during his Ooh. scene on air. That's just oh so God. bad. <laughs> it's so bad. But, but well done. I guess, what did you know about William Hurt? Had you seen anything else that he'd been in from the 80s? Because he kind of just like fades away. So just going through his 80s, he was in five movies that were nominated for Best Picture and had three wow. Best Actor nominations and a win in the first 10 years of his career. And then he just kind of, I think, got replaced by like the Kevin Costners and the Nicolas Cages. Interesting. Yeah. Looking through his filmography on imdb his name is so a-list but i can't pinpoint like a certain movie that i've loved with him probably the biggest movie is mr brooks which is a funny coincidence and also involves kevin costner yeah (laughs) that's why i'm laughing i'm just like but no i haven't really seen any of his 80s films okay i think you should watch body heat okay it's an erotic thriller with him and kathleen turner I watched it at the very beginning of quarantine and really, really liked it. I will say I watched Serial Mom during quarantine, which was a fun watch. What is that? (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's Kathleen Turner as this serial killer mother. And it's actually based on a true story of this housewife who just kills people. And it's made by John Waters. So it's just like incredibly campy. It's a fun watch. I'll watch it. I think it's streaming too. Okay, so final questions. How do you think today's Academy would receive this? Actually, I think it might have done better today. I think it might have actually won something. That's interesting. I feel like it would have done well today. The screenplay is so strong and it had mm-hmm. such broad critical support then that I feel like it would it would work with the Academy. And I think that just having the acting support that it did, I think it would do really well. And then if you, I'm going to change the language here. If you had to give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? (laughs) You know, I think I would give it to Holly Hunter. Really? Yeah. What would you give it to? I would also give it to Holly Hunter. I'm torn because I would do, I would give it multiple Oscars. But if I could pick someone that wasn't even nominated at all, I think I would give best director to James L. Brooks. He was snubbed. So he was the only director of the five Best Picture nominees Mm -hmm. who wasn't nominated. It instead went to Hallstrom, who made My Life as a Dog, which had a very robust Oscar campaign, from what I heard. I thought maybe you'd pick screenplay. I mean, it's it's a toss-up. But I just, I love, I love Holly Hunter as Jane so much that (laughs) that would be the one. But we'll talk about Cher later. (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a quick intermission. We're going to talk about the ceremony a little bit what actually happened that night because i think this came at not a great moment for hollywood and then we'll also talk about some snubs from the night and then just some fun facts in general the bat a writer strike had just started a month before the ceremony and it's actually the longest 
WGA writer's strike in history. So the people producing the Oscars had a hard time with this ceremony particularly because only part of it had been written and they used comedian actors to kind of fill in the blanks and ad lib along the way. Another comedic moment that I thought was good, Robin Williams actually presented Best Director. And Mm -hmm. when he was reading the nominees and got to Bernardo Bertolucci, after he said The Last Emperor, he said one of Ronald Reagan's favorite films. (laughs) A little shady, but great comedy from Robin Williams. His whole speech here is amazing. And they let these actors just go on and on to fill time. Mm -hmm. And Robin does this huge comedic bit at first. But then once he announces all of the nominees, he says... And along with the Oscar, the Academy will be giving out a green card. Yeah. (laughs) Because all of the nominees were foreign. There's a Canadian director, two British, Italian, and a Swedish director, which you completely could not say today. But no, it is very funny in the moment. Because I don't think this happens often where you have five foreign directors. No, it is a branch where you will get more, I think, than acting, for example. Like Mm -hmm. thinking to the past, like we had Pavel Pavlikowski got in for Cold War, but none of the actors got in and that didn't get in for Best Picture. Um, So it does happen, but to have five is pretty wild. And then for Robin to make that joke, it's just like, oh, 80s, here we are. And then right after Robin, Eddie Murphy presents for Best Picture. And he starts off his speech talking about how black people have been snubbed by the Oscars for years and that, yes, they've had some winners along the way, but it happens like every 20 years. He mentions Hattie McDaniels and then Sidney Poitier. And he's like, oh, I guess we're not due really until like 2004. And it kind of deadpans. Nobody is clapping or Mm -hmm. laughing. But I wonder if that speech is why he was snubbed. A couple of years ago for... Dolomite is my name. Yes. Yeah. Thinking about Eddie Murphy's history with the Academy and that movie last year, Netflix, we've talked about their awards campaigns and how they just don't really pick a horse. But Dolomite is my name was one of their stronger contenders and they just kind of backed off of it completely Mm -hmm. besides technical stuff. I remember there was a time when I was like, oh, Eddie Murphy's back. He's hosting SNL. He's going to get nominated. But I wonder if you're right. And the Academy as an institution just remembers stuff like this. Hold that grudge. Terrible, but I could see them doing that. Yeah. He was pretty high in predictions for a long time. Mm hmm. Another fact that I thought was interesting was that so Olympia Dukakis, who won for Best Supporting Actress for Moonstruck, at the end of her speech, she just randomly yells, okay, Michael, let's go. And when I listened to it, I was like, who's Michael? What's going on here? But then I was like, of course, I should have put two and two together. Michael Dukakis is her cousin, and he was running for president at the time trying to get the Democratic nomination. He actually ended up getting the nomination, but then lost to H.W. Bush and Dan Quayle in The General, Hmm. which is so interesting and weird and like what a small world well-connected people have. Yeah, crazy. (laughs) Another win that year, Billy Wilder, one of our favorites here, Oscar Mm -hmm. Wilde, won the Irving G. Thalberg memorial award and he's made so many i think of our favorite movies so if you are ever just wanting to visit or revisit any classic cinema billy wilder is a great place to start i think of his movies the apartment is my favorite but you really can't go wrong that's probably the most critically acclaimed my favorite by far is some like it hot 
Oh, that is a great one too. With Marilyn and, and Jack Lemon, who actually presented the award to him at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And his speech is adorable. I almost teared up at the end because his personal history is just so interesting. He got out of Nazi Germany literally at the last second. And he tells this really powerful story of how he got out during this speech, which you should watch if you haven't seen this. And the fact that You know, he could have been sent to Dachau, like he says, but he didn't. And he made all of these wonderful films that we have now is bone chilling. Mm -hmm. So I think we 100% need to do a retrospective of Billy Wilder here. One of the best screenwriters in history and so many lovable films. Yeah, I would love to do that. So now let's get into some of our favorite movies that weren't nominated for Best Picture or maybe any Oscars at all. My number one film, which wasn't nominated for Best Picture, I think it could have been for Picture or Director, is Au Revoir Les Enfants, which is made by Louis Mal and one of my favorite movies of all time that I originally had seen in one of my French classes in college and rewatched it recently and was still completely in love with it. This one I need to revisit because when I saw that it was nominated, I immediately went back to a film class I took in college and remembered how much I really loved it and how beautiful it was. Completely holds up. The ending is just so heartbreaking. So I texted you earlier this week that I had a really interesting fun fact about a movie we wouldn't really talk about on this podcast. And it's this movie. And did you know that Louis Mal was married to Candace Bergen? Isn't that crazy? Yes. So I put in my criterion to rewatch this, and I saw in the additional features, Mm -hmm. it just says Candace Bergen. And I was like, what? So I clicked on it, and she was married to him for like 15 years, and she was actually on the set of Au Revoir with him. And it was like a really cold set. And hearing her talk about this and her relationship with Louis and winning huge at the César Awards in France was so, so interesting, something I never would have expected or knew, and it completely shocked me. I love her so much. That is such a great fun fact. I had no idea. (laughs) If it's available online, I'll send it to you because it's a short interview too. And it's, I think, really fun. And I'm not exactly happy that this lost to Babette's Feast, which ended up winning the foreign film for Denmark. But I will say the last 45 minutes of Babette's Feast is exhilarating and some of the best in food cinema that we have. I did really like Babette's Feast. It took a while for me to get into it, but I think once you're there, it's Mm -hmm. a great movie. My favorite first time watch actually was shockingly Full Metal Jacket. For some reason, I just had never seen this one and it really just like gutted me. I was so moved and shocked by it, especially the first half in the very final scene. I was like, oh my God, Kubrick at it again. It should have been nominated for Best Picture. And he should have gotten a director nomination as well. Wait, you had never seen Full Metal Jacket before? No. It was the only, like, one of few Kubrick I had never seen. Yeah, I had never (gasps) seen it. Oh, my gosh. We all have our movies that we've never seen. I have plenty. Oh, my gosh. I think I've seen all of Kubrick. I have Paths of Glory left. That's the only one I've never seen. The first half of Full Metal Jacket is just, could be a movie on its own and is honestly one of the best army sequences of all time. I really don't know why I hadn't seen this or like I think war movies are really not my thing with the exception of a few. It's kind of how you are with period films. They're just not 
but no, it really was it was very very impressive i had to get all my kubrick book and read all about it i could rewatch the first part over and over and over again and not be bored by it i think it's yeah. great cinema but to your point another movie that wasn't nominated at all is called the dead it's with angelica houston Mm-hmm. And it was a huge critics winner this year, and I couldn't I couldn't get into it. This is like a 1903 or 1904 period piece, and I yes, you're correct. Your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Another great movie that came out this year, Raising Arizona, which had Holly Hunter and Nicolas Cage in it. It's a Coen Brothers movie. It is absolutely insane. I highly recommend. It's a very quick very easy watch and i would say bizarre electric cohen filmmaking also one i've never seen before there we go okay yeah so you need to watch this i mean there are a lot from this year i tried to watch a ton before Mm -hmm. this podcast but there ended up being so many on my list that i hadn't seen i was Mm -hmm. overwhelmed there was this empire of the sun i'd mentioned earlier street smart which had done somewhat well in the critic circle my life as a dog good morning (laughs) vietnam Cry Freedom, RoboCop, mm-hmm. and Wall Street. Oh, Wall Street. You would be bored out of your mind by Wall Street, I think. <laughs> it's an Oliver Stone movie. Michael Douglas, that's what he won Best Actor for. Gordon Gecko, iconic character. Okay, so it's time for Fatal Attraction. It's about a married man's one-night stand comes back to haunt him when that lover begins to stalk him and his family. It's directed by Adrian Lyne. It stars Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, and Ann Archer. It was nominated for six Oscars, one zero. It was up for Best Picture, Director, Best Actress for Glenn, Best Supporting Actress for Ann, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Editing. Part of me is just really shocked that this was nominated for, one, so many awards, but Picture and Director. It is shocking to me as well i mean it was a huge box office hit but that's not a guarantee for getting those nominations right it's a really enjoyable movie i think but it's very trashy and i mean that lovingly i i really do enjoy it and have a good time watching it but it's just one of those movies where you're like it's not standard that these things get through i think glenn as alex forrest is just so infuriating but she's so good at it Mm -hmm. it's painful and One of my favorite shots is when she's on the roller coaster with their little girl, Ellen, and she's just sitting there with like the coldest of looks on her face. Too funny. (laughs) The editing with the roller coaster and the car crash is so good. It is so funny. (laughs) Poor Ellen needs decades of therapy at this point after just (laughs) this short stint from Alex in her life. The thing is, too, is like this movie, it was such a hit. And I think even if you haven't seen Fatal Attraction, you still know what it is because you've either seen something from it, you know about the bunny or you know about like the I will not be ignored line from Glenn or you've seen the multitude of movies that this has spawned about this like woman from hell or like what happens when you have an affair and it's with this person who you don't know is going to turn out this way Mm -hmm. gone girl is the most recent example i can think of that's very similar yeah the thing about this that's very 80s and something that i don't like about it is just that the script is very hard on the alex character 
and very easy on the Dan character, Michael Douglas. And at the same time, it's kind of like, well, you were the one who had the affair. Like, you deserve, I don't know, the script to be a little bit harder on you than it is just fully on Alex, even though she is obviously the villain of the story. But this is a case where I do wish we had some backstory about Alex or some additional information about her like does she have any friends what is you know like what is her life like outside of this affair the one thing that's very 80s and I think that is like such a contrast to broadcast news is that I think at the time people did read into it because the Glenn character wasn't very well written it's like oh this woman is crazy and alone because she has a career And Mm -hmm. you also have the Ann Archer, the Beth character as the wife who is a perfect woman. Those characters are just so stereotypical, I think, of what people thought of women who had careers versus who didn't at the Mm -hmm. time. And I think the script definitely could have benefited from better writing for all characters, really, but in particular, (laughs) the Alex character. Yeah, Dan is completely a scumbag and he gets off way too easily obviously not by Alex and you know how he's stalked by her but once he eventually comes clean to Beth she's almost victimized and is so distraught that she gives in to him which seems very weak and weak writing I think is where that comes into play like you're saying so I think certain things had to happen in the film and they wanted the audience to feel a certain way by the end that it had to be simple in its purpose and it got us there that's also why I enjoy the movie at the same time is because like it's like a Hitchcock movie kind of at the beginning but it lacks Mm -hmm. all of the deeper intellectual elements that a Hitchcock movie has like it's just straight up a movie (laughs) that is enjoyable to watch and is nuts and relies on great acting performances I think everyone does really well even Michael Douglas here so I had seen this before and I rewatched it I think it is a fun movie to watch and Mm -hmm. the shocking elements that happen still come Mm -hmm. off strong and play well you know the editing is great which is Mm -hmm. great that it was nominated how do you think today's academy would receive this movie so i don't think it would get nominated for best picture or director today one they don't make movies like this anymore i think audiences would really like erotic thrillers to come back but i don't think it's something that is happening now and if it did I think that a movie that's this kind of pulpy and let me put it this way. I think maybe Glenn Close would get a nomination or the actress who was in that role would get a nomination. But I definitely can't see it getting like picture, director, all of those nominations across the board. What do you think? Well, I think we'll have to wait until Deepwater comes out later this year to Mm -hmm. see if that erotic thriller is Academy worthy at all. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. Ana de Armas is on the rise. But I agree. I think the addition here is just perplexing. But I think a lot of these movies, as I think about them, the nominations in general, I don't think many of them would be nominated today. If you had to give this movie an Oscar, other than Best Picture, what would you give it? It has to be Glenn Close for Best Actress. Yeah. Let's talk about Glenn a little bit here because the casting information about this is kind of fascinating to me because they did not want Glenn in this movie. They did not think (laughs) that she would be believable. They didn't think she had sex appeal. Like, they just didn't see it. Glenn? Glenn, Yeah. Oh my gosh. She was like the fourth choice. They really didn't want her. But I think because she wanted the role so badly and she tried so hard, it comes across in the character and it's brilliant. I think it's one of Glenn's best performances. 
And it showed that she could take on different types of roles and that she was a very versatile actress. Mm -hmm. And I think she does a great job in it. If you watch the movie, there is an alternate ending. So Glenn was not on board with the ending that actually made it into the film. She didn't want it. She didn't think it would work with the character. I'll tell you about the other ending offline um, (laughs) because it's crazy. So apparently, guess who turned down the role of Alex Forrest because she was making another movie this year? Was it Cher? Elizabeth Shue, who was making Adventures in Babysitting. (gasps) Okay, that would have been a fun movie. She probably would have had a bigger career had she been in Fatal Attraction. So Elizabeth Shue is so much younger than Michael Douglas, and I think it's better when the actors are closer to the same age. I think Michael Douglas is actually better in Fatal Attraction than Wall Street what he won his Oscar for. <laughs> so if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? It would be for Glenn too. That's an easy answer. Yeah. I think she's one of the most versatile actresses and has just the widest range in careers mm-hmm. that I think I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I love that you told us that story about her pushing to be in this movie because I think she works in it incredibly well. Like what were they thinking? Yeah, She's so good. <laughs> she's like, you can't really see it with anyone else. And I think she elevates the movie. Totally. As much as it can be (laughs) elevated. (laughs) And you mentioned that ending. I think that's the ending that needed to happen because it does fit for me, even though it's simplistic. Well, the ending that happens, I think, is like it's very satisfying to audiences. Okay, yeah. The ending that didn't happen is more complex for the Alex Hmm. character, maybe. That's all I'm going to say. But if you've seen Fatal Attraction (laughs) and you don't know about this ending, go to YouTube. It's crazy. All right, on to Hope and Glory. Hope and Glory was directed by John Borman. It's about Bill, a young boy living on the outskirts of London who experiences the exhilaration of World War II. We didn't write this description. This is from IMDb, just to note. During this period, Bill learns about sex, death, love, hypocrisy, and the faults of adults as he prowls the ruins of bombed houses was nominated for five Oscars and won zero, nominated for picture, director, original screenplay, best cinematography, and best art direction. What did you think of Hope and Glory? Well, now that you mentioned all that, we can just move on to Moonstruck, our last movie (laughs) that we'll be talking about. Perfect. (laughs) I think that it was the director's personal story with Mm -hmm. what happened during the Blitz. I think is touching and what makes this special and maybe why it was nominated but I don't really consider the account and the message of the film to be like lasting or incredibly moving I guess I don't know how did you feel about this I'm assuming this was your first time watch as well yeah so I think it is important to say that of the five this was the only one that I wasn't familiar with at all That being said, it was fine. It's not a bad movie by any means. It's not even, I don't think, in the conversation for, like, worst movies to ever be nominated for Best Picture. Right. But it just didn't make sense to me as to why it was nominated until I did my research on what was going on at the time. And it won the L.A. Film Critics Circle Best Film Award, which apparently I read then in an L.A. Times article from back then that when it won Best Film with the L.A. Film Critics, a Columbia exec shared that Columbia decided then to put more dollars on its awards campaign. So they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, it has this critical support. Let's put money behind it. And then I found out the weirdest thing is that it won the Golden Globe for a comedy musical. What? Over Moonstruck and Broadcast News. Oh my gosh, that's terrible. I was like, is this a comedy or musical? (laughs) 
okay, yeah. Apart from the fact that it won over those movies, it's not even a comedy or a musical. Yeah. Ugh. So that kind of explains, I guess, how it got there. It did have a lot of support at the time. It just is one of those mm-hmm. that I think today is forgotten. It's also really hard to find. It's not available on streaming, so you really have to yeah. dig to find it. I read a few critics' pieces on the movie and trying to understand maybe why I didn't like it and why it was so loved at the time, or at least by certain communities. Mm-hmm. And a few critics had lauded it because it was a different depiction than others at the time of how children's naivetes weren't marred by this wartime Mm-hmm. surrounding and I think that's maybe what is so different about Hope and Glory is how it portrays war and the bombings on his street and how he forms this like gang with other boys in his town and how he is going to be sent off to be protected during the war and he's like mad at his parents and says you know I'm gonna miss the war now it's like so childish and I think the way the movie ends just kind of muddles things even more and in what it's trying to say about war there's this scene really close to the end but the school is bombed and he goes thank you Adolf and I was like oh so do you think today's academy would respond in a similar way or do you think it would just a movie like this would get shut out I think it still could be nominated I don't Mm -hmm. think it would be up for picture director you agree Yeah, I agree. And I think there is still very much a desire for films about what you were talking about, which is this like a child's interpretation of war. So we're Mm -hmm. thinking recently, and this is a very different movie, but Jojo Rabbit, like that's exactly what that really was about Mm -hmm. is like this kid experiencing world war ii and hitler and that has a very different tone to it than hope and glory but i think still that did pretty well with critics and with the hollywood forum press and then with the oscars so i think that's kind of how i would see it playing out today this is exactly what this would be if it came out today it would be jojo rabbit and then if you could give this movie one oscar what would you give it again if i had to i think i'd go with production design because there are some really well-made sets of bombed houses and the fake balloon planes they have flying there are just great sets if you had to give it one oscar what would you give it It would be the same thing, production design. I think that this film itself, like it's about a boy who explores the ruins and without Mm -hmm. the production design and those set pieces there, the story doesn't work as well. So that's what I would give it. We made it. We have our last nominee here. Probably the most exciting for both of us. Mm -hmm. Definitely. (laughs) So Moonstruck, which was a first time watch for me, made it this long without seeing it, is about Loretta Castorini, a bookkeeper from Brooklyn, New York, who finds herself in a difficult situation when she falls for the brother of the man she has agreed to marry. It's directed by Norman Jewison, stars Cher, Nicolas Cage, Olympia Dukakis, Vincent Gardenia, and Danny Aiello. It was nominated for six Oscars. It won three for Best Original Screenplay, Best Actress for Cher, and Best Supporting Actress for Olympia Dukakis, and then was also nominated for Picture, Director, and Supporting Actor for Vincent Gardenia. I think out of the bunch, this was definitely the most fun. Also surprising that it was nominated, but I thoroughly enjoyed watching this movie. I'm so glad. (laughs) (laughs) Is this one that you revisit a lot or have over time? 
I think it's my favorite movie of the 80s that isn't a 70s movie made in 1980 or 1981, like a, a true 80s movie. For example, I watched it on Christmas Eve and in preparing for this podcast, watched it again a few days ago. It's so delightful. It's beautiful and romantic. And I love the New York setting and I love how Italian it is. And I think like this is if you made it movie Mount Rushmore of Italian-American films, this would have one of the four spots for me. Yeah, it's just delightful. I love it so much. I loved how the film was set up, and I don't think I'd seen any of Cher's earlier works or Nicolas Cage's for that matter. So it was fun to see them in a different way. They were like really commanding actors on the screen, Mm -hmm. which was fun. And I think the setting, I also loved seeing New York and Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And you start off in Lincoln Center with La Boheme at the Met and just clean streets and this very Italian restaurant. I love the culture that we got to see Mm -hmm. in a way that I also revere The Godfather and any of Scorsese's works, really. Mm -hmm. And I think they did a really good job here of telling about the Italian-American family and values. It feels so just personal and like homey to me. It's just a warm movie. And, you know, maybe that is because when you're Italian, it's just you relate to it more. But I feel Mm -hmm. like there is something that everyone can relate to in this movie, but that probably does make it a richer experience. It's almost like a fable or like a folklore tale. I really Mm -hmm. like that of how they combine the moon and food and luck and curses in the story because normally I think it's something that if you had stuff like that happening in a script, it would be easy to just kind of brush it off or scoff at it as being silly, but it carries a lot of weight here and you're kind of forced to take it seriously with these characters, which I really love that about it. The story is kind of oddly serious, but it's also one of the funniest scripts that I think I've ever seen. I was just constantly laughing, but I was also beaming the whole time just from their presentation of the characters and Mm -hmm. everything was so Italian. And I love that so much. (laughs) The screenplay is so funny. Like they're just moments the whole time where you were laughing it's just so absurd how superstitious they are Mm -hmm. it works so well some of my favorite lines in it I love when (laughs) Olympia Dukakis when Cher comes home and she has the hickey or love bite as she calls on her neck and she's like put some makeup on cover up the damn thing your life is going down the toilet answer the damn door That whole final scene is so much fun. And I love that it was this culmination of all the characters coming together. And No, I love um, it. It's kind of like a fun play. Yeah. I really like that. I mean, the definition of Moonstruck is about not being able to think normally because you're in love. I love the title because in addition to just how big and bright the moon is the whole time mm-hmm. and how these characters fall in love. I also like how it ties in with Nicolas Cage's character because Loretta, she constantly compares him to a wolf, which like goes perfectly with the moon. I liked that touch to it. I have to send you this article that I saw because there's a lot of imagery that is happening Mm -hmm. that is really subtle or background. And I love that they put all of this in there. Another one was how the insignia on the truck in the beginning starts with M, has two O's and ends with N. So it's like moon. But again, it's something you would never notice unless you're like looking for it or have probably seen this movie a lot. So I love that. So I definitely will be revisiting. I have a ton of quotes written down. Me too. And I'm not going through <laughs> all of them, but 
I think it just shows how well the script was written. My favorite line is actually with the aunt and uncle. It's when the moon is so big and you like see it out the window and it's just like it makes me want to cry. It's so beautiful. But she says in that light with that expression on your face, you look about 25 years old. It's just so sweet. Moments like that, in addition to the comedy, you're just like, oh, these are just very real people. Reading through all these lines I wrote down, I really want to watch this again now. (laughs) I mean, the fact that this bright moon is happening for four nights in a row obviously Mm -hmm. isn't real. But I think that's why it plays just so lightheartedly and why I'm not taking this movie seriously Mm -hmm. and like critiquing it. But I think it's also, it's just a fun watch. It speaks a lot on love and how it makes you crazy, how you can be moonstruck Mm -hmm. by someone's brother, (laughs) a toothless Nicolas Cage. (laughs) Were you attracted to Nicolas Cage in this movie? No. (laughs) My roommate was. I also am. (laughs) I mean, he was kind of wolf-like. He had a lot of chest hair, his like bushy eyebrows. It didn't work for me. He reminds me a lot of Adam Driver in Girls. He has a very similar (laughs) affect and just he's big and just kind of, yeah, wolf-like. And he's someone who on the surface, like if you saw a picture of him, you'd be like, him really no but there is something kind of like animal like about him that is attractive Mm -hmm. in a way and the fact that he's like that and he likes the opera he's such a well-written eccentric creative character and Nicolas Cage is the perfect person to play him I really liked him a lot in this movie maybe young Nick Cage was perfect for this I don't think he could star in this today well no we've discussed him a lot on this pod (laughs) Well, maybe he could do the Danny Aiello part. How did you feel about Cher in this and Olympia Dukakis? Because on the mailbag, we got a question like, what is your favorite supporting actor, actress performance? And I listed Olympia Dukakis in Moonstruck as one of mine. So I'm curious to hear from Hmm. you, like what you liked about her or um, if you thought that she had a deserving win. I love both of them in this movie. And I think... Especially, I believed in their relationship as mother and daughter. Mm -hmm. So maybe that was part of it. But I really haven't seen much of either of them and their other works. So I didn't have much ground to compare this to. Mm -hmm. Supporting Actress was pretty weak that year, actually. But I feel like even in a strong year, I would have rooted for her because... She's Mm -hmm. just so good, so good as Cher's mom. Just like even the way she's introduced in the movie when they're like, Rose, Rose, wake up. And she's like, who died? Yes. So good. (laughs) And just her being like, do you, and Cher's like, I'm getting married. She's like, do you love him? No. Good. Do you like him? Okay. Yes. It's just so perfect. That was a great line. And all of the food that she's making throughout this just looks so good. I don't know. That's not like a criteria for winning Best Supporting Actress, but (laughs) it made me love her performance more. Well, she kind of reminds me like a Leslie Manville kind of nomination here, but very strong. I love both of them. So if supporting, you say, was weak, how was lead actress? Lead actress is pretty strong. A couple of them could have won and I would have been happy. So my favorite performances are definitely Cher for Moonstruck and Holly Hunter for Broadcast News. And even Glenn Close for Fatal Attraction. But if you're looking, I think, at the nominees, we also had Meryl Streep, who was nominated for Ironweed. This was Meryl's seventh nomination in 10 years. So 
the Merrill train wow. was already rolling. Like people were yeah. at the Academy were on the train and it's still going, but she'd already won twice. So she wasn't about to win again, but that goodwill mm-hmm. for Merrill got her in for the nomination. Glenn is kind of the opposite. I shouldn't be laughing. It's really sad. And I love Glenn, but it was her fourth nomination and fourth loss of the eighties. And the opposite kind of train was definitely happening for Glenn, and she's still on it. Yeah. It's It's so sad. And then Holly Hunter, first nomination, didn't win, but ended up winning later for the piano. So Sally Kirkland was in Anna, which, have you seen or heard of Anna before? No. Exactly. So Anna was a really small movie, but Sally was determined to get a nomination. She pooled money for a campaign. For, for your consideration ads, she wrote letters to Ampass members. Shelly Winters, who we talked about last week for the On This Day, called 150 people on her behalf. Wow. And she got nominated. Oh it God. worked. <laughs> I mean, that really just goes to show you this is all political. Yeah. And if you want your way, you can have it. So Sally Kirkland won the Golden Globe for drama actress. Well, and Cher won the other Golden Globe. So mm-hmm. I think the reason I like Cher's win here, and I would have been fine with Glenn Close winning or with Holly Hunter winning, but the reason I like Cher's win here is because it just kind of solidified her as someone to take seriously in Hollywood, you know, winning an Oscar for Cher. And she doesn't take herself too seriously, I think, which I really love about her. And in addition to just loving Cher as an icon, I love this performance for her because she really does just disappear into the Loretta character. And for someone like Cher, who is a larger-than-life character in person, it's even more impressive that she was able to do that. You say all this, but funnily enough, she disappears from Oscar nominations after this. Whereas Glenn would go on to make so many more films, and she still isn't one. Well, I mean, I think, too, like, Cher ones, we know her as 80s Cher who won the Oscar. Like, that's where, you know, she is in history, and, like, it's... it's true. For Glenn, who Just knows when that'll happened come. happened yet? Or? I really hope it does. <laughs> but like Holly Hunter, she didn't need it. She won later. Yeah. But Cher is like, it was this or nothing, right? I think out of all of the categories we've talked about today, besides picture, obviously, I would want to know the voting percentages for this category. Mm-hmm. Like Cher versus Holly versus mm-hmm. Glenn is a really interesting mm-hmm. trio. So how do you think today's Academy would receive Moonstruck? Sadly, I think kind of like Fatal Attraction, I'm not sure this would have had that much attention. I mean, it still kind of surprises me that it did throughout the whole season. Mm -hmm. I think there are elements, yes, but in terms of like grand Oscar films, I just don't think today it would have been as widely received or nominated. I think that there's always a chance that with a romantic movie, especially a romantic comedy, that it won't be taken seriously. I think that in the case of Moonstruck, maybe. I think that recently, looking at Lady Bird, that's a coming-of-age story, so it's very different, but one that critics really loved that I think is just a delightful, easy watch mm-hmm. that got a Best Picture nomination and a Best Director nomination, so it could happen. I think the one thing that Moonstruck does have going for it as well is that it probably resonated with older voters, too. Like, yes, Cher and Nicolas Cage are younger in the movie, but it also has, you know, a big part of the film is shares parents and the infidelity of that relationship and the aunt and uncle and how much they love each other so i think that 
pretty much any age group would identify with Moonstruck and would love it. So while I think there's a chance it wouldn't be taken seriously, of course, I think that there's a possibility that just that good, warm feeling you get from it, no matter that's true how old you are, it could work. And the fact that it's an immigrant story and talks about culture so much, I think it brings a wide audience in in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I love how the movie ends on the photo of the two ancestors. And then if you gave this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? Best Supporting Actress for Olympia Dukakis. I know I've said that in many ways, but she's my favorite part of the movie. Mm-hmm. What would you pick? I would give mm-hmm. it to screenplay here. That's a good choice. Okay, so let's get into our preferential ballots. So how we would vote or how we would rank these nominees. I think it's safe to say that we don't agree with the way things went. I mean, I think I understand The Last Emperor winning. Mm -hmm. I just don't think out of these five nominees, there's a standout that's like, this deserved Best Picture 100% and I still say so 15, 20, however many years later. Okay, what is your number five? I think we can agree on fives, at least. My five would be hope and glory. (laughs) My five is also hope and glory. I'll just rip the Band-Aid off. My number four would be broadcast news. Unreal. I'm going to put you in (laughs) podcast jail. (laughs) My number four is fatal attraction. Okay, my number three is fatal attraction. My number three is the last emperor. My number two is the last emperor. Whoa. My number two is broadcast news. And my number one is Moonstruck. My number one is also Moonstruck. I feel like we never agree on the number one. So this is a big deal, even if the rest of our list doesn't First look the same. First and last, yeah. Yeah, seriously. I'm scared for when we do like the 40s or 50s. Oh, geez. Which will come later this year. Mm-hmm. I think I put Moonstruck first here more as a, I know it's not going to win, but I still want to give it a preferential number one. Mm-hmm. instead of The Last Emperor, which I feel like may have been slated to win anyway. Mm-hmm. Moonstruck is my number one just because it's my favorite of the group, and that's why I ranked it yeah. first. Yeah. I just love it so much. And I think if you're looking for an 80s film that you haven't seen or that is just very 80s but also I think holds up really well, definitely watch Moonstruck. I really don't know a single person who doesn't like it. I think this is a movie that I'm most disappointed with myself having not seen this before because I am definitely going to rewatch this very soon. That's so fun though that like you can discover movies yeah. like now that you'll that'll be new favorites. That's always That's cool. That's very true, yeah. So next time on Oscar Wilde, we're going to be talking about our predictions for the best animated feature category at this year's Oscars. And a very exciting update that I had alluded to on last week's episode is that we'll be doing an exclusive interview with the directors of Wolfwalkers, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. So I'm very, very, very excited about this. I can't wait. This is going to be so much fun. I can't wait to talk to them about their movie because I loved Wolfwalkers so much. It was just so beautiful and creative. And if you haven't seen Wolfwalkers yet, it's available on Apple TV+. You don't actually need an Apple TV to watch Apple TV+. Plus. You can just watch it on your computer, get the app on your phone. Definitely check out that movie. We'll be talking about that. We'll also be talking about Soul and some other animated features that have come out this year. So it's going to be a very fun episode. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. Thank you all for listening so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay safe and wear your masks. 
Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next week. Stay safe and wear your masks. Thank you.